You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I am Tom Knezic, and welcome to a, a jokeless episode 48 of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast. Uh, I have been canceled from making any more jokes. <laughs> no, no, even though I would have loved to have pulled the plug on that one, it wasn't me who, who canceled I, you. I can't say. <laughs> That's, you know, there's I, a stop order on me making any more jokes. First of all, you did get some fans because I we did, got yeah. emails from Kelly Gill mm-hmm. uh, loving the humor and adding her own, yeah. which <laughs> yeah. which were groan-induced on, on my end. Yeah. But I was waiting because typically we have like a light uh, – not script, but it's kind of like a, a, a bullet point mm-hmm. with what we're going to yep. discuss. And, and you typically will put the joke in even though I don't read it in advance, and there was no joke. So I thought you were going to – hit me with like a really good one no not not this week i'm gonna have to sneak them in every once in a while i can't just let it go that's good (laughs) you know i i i always thought we would be canceled before we hit episode 50 but i guess we're gonna make it maybe that's good that yeah maybe the jokes not having the jokes will get us there (laughs) so so are we gonna are we gonna do anything special for 50 since we haven't planned anything yet and it's only two weeks away i don't i don't think we are we might have to wait till 100 (laughs) maybe we can just celebrate episode 53 no let's do 100 that gives us another year actually that gives us a whole year from today to plan a thing so um before i get too off topic i'm feeling selfish because we're having a, I, I tend to find that my favorite episodes are ones that I learn and I, I'm selfish because we keep picking guests that I on topics that I want to learn more about <laughs> so mm-hmm. I it's almost like I'm expanding myself with the, with the guest selection so I'm really looking forward to this one because I don't know a lot about this topic and I really would like to learn more yeah, about this topic. M- me too and um and it's something I'm still fairly novice about so that's why i'm gonna uh let our guest even introduce the topic and himself because um he's the expert and uh and since i've last seen him he's probably, i think he's changed changed universities teaching that so okay uh, awesome. but we today we have dr dan duran and uh and dan why don't you take some time and let us know who you are where you're from and and uh, a little bit about what you're going to talk about today Great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. This is awesome. I love what you guys are trying to do. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, my name is Dr. Daniel Duran, and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Science at Rowan University. And I am also the Gloucester County, New Jersey naturalist, too. So this is a cool appointment that I have. It's 50% professor and 50% naturalist. And, you know, the professor half of me is what you would expect from a professor. I do teaching, I do research. um, And the half of me that is the naturalist, uh, well, we have an awesome park that I take care of. I'm the land steward and the director for uh, Scotland Run Park in Gloucester County. It's in Clayton, New Jersey, and it's about 1,300 acres, so it's a it's a good chunk of land. And we have a wonderful lake there, Wilson Lake, with all kinds of diverse fish and insects in it. And uh, one of the things we have that I'm really proud of is the recently revamped Nature Center, oh. of which we have uh, exclusively native animals and plants 
that are all from South Jersey and almost all are found in Scotland Run Park as well. And so one of the reasons for this is to kind of combat a very common trend that I see, which is this idea that nature is far from you, right? When you look at nature specials and you think about zoos and the way that they're oriented, they're trying to get people interested in nature and that's great, but it reinforces this idea that nature is in the Amazon, it's in Southeast Asia, it's super, super far from you. And there's no reason we have to think this way. There's amazing things. We have beautiful animals, corn snakes, we have all kinds of fish, we have black banded sunfish, we have painted turtles. These things are all from South Jersey and they're here. You live with nature and we want to reinforce that idea instead. Yeah, and that's really something that's I found is reinforced from a, a young age. And um, I, I, Fran and I have talked about this off the air. I don't think I've ever said it on the air, but uh, well, you guys all know that we had my wife and I had a baby almost ten months ago. Yeah. But congrats! You think about it, and it's like all the toys are lions and giraffes and elephants. And you watch TV like all the kids kids programs. It's all um, non native animals or, or, or non domestic animals. And we have lots of great things here, like uh, deer and snakes, like you mentioned, and uh, rabbits and all kinds of domestic animals that are really, really cool. But we always cherish these, uh, I guess the, the right phrase is uh, charismatic African megafauna. So, well, the, you know, it's funny because for me as a kid, you know, you had Bambi, mm-hmm. you had Bugs Bunny and yeah. Pepe Le Pew. Like you had all these Porky Pig yeah, that's and true. Donald Duck. It was all more domesticated. And that really has changed mm-hmm. from, I mean, those predate before I yeah. was born, but I, I definitely see that. And I think yeah. a lot of that, be, actually, before I, that, I want to say, I've noticed that the more passionate our guests is, the more they're involved with. You oh, know? yeah. And you make, <laughs> I feel like such a slacker <laughs> every time someone mentions all the wonderful things are involved with because I'm like, Oh, maybe I should do more. I probably should do more. But um, I, I think a lot of people have lost their connection with nature Mm -hmm. and, and they they're so disconnected that they feel it can't exist in their yard. It exists elsewhere and they don't feel that they can make a difference with, with their property or in a small space, which really isn't the case. It's really kind of like opening their eyes to that connection again. And Do you, do you find that when you have visitors coming into like these places that there's a lack of disconnect? You know, it's it depends on the people that come in. I and mean, we have people that come in and they know what they want to see. And they're like, oh, I'm here to see the corn snake, you know. And so they, they're really excited about that. And then you have people that are just like, well, what do you got? You know, and they want <laughs> to see um, what it is. And sometimes we get new things and, and they're, oh, that's cool. That wasn't here the last time I was here. And you know, we do nature walks. Actually, every Tuesday, I do a walk from 9.30 to 10.30 um, in April and May called Nature Discovery with Dr. Dan, which I didn't name, but that's the county wanted to call it. So <laughs> sounds good to me. Um, and it's awesome. We just go around and walk and there's no script. I mean, it's just whatever happens, happens. Mm-hmm. Something flies by, we talk about it. We find something that's in flower all of a sudden, we talk about it. And people ask me questions and they have great questions that I would never think to address because you know, you just don't know what other people have in their head, you know, and, and there's just all kinds of things they want to know. And I answer the best I can. And sometimes I just don't know, you know, that's another thing too. Somebody said to me, what's this one plant? And I know almost all the trees and a mm-hmm. lot of the plants, but every now and then there's some little tiny herbaceous thing that I'm like, I have no idea. And, you know, people kind of think you're supposed to know everything and you can't, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, one of my uh, one of my bosses has told people, "Oh, Dan knows every single 
plant and bird and insect. And I'm like, I don't know every insect. I have, you know, advanced degrees in entomology, but I don't know every insect in New Jersey or even close, you know, there's just so much nature out there. So it's hard to know it all. Dan, I'm, I'm going to cut you off, friend. Dan, I'm going to give you a, a million dollar idea here. Cause we were actually going to do this at one point and start a, a YouTube series, but all you need is someone to follow you around with an iPhone to do this. We were going to create a YouTube series um, with my brother and it was just going to be called like woods walk with Steve, where he basically, we we're just going to record him walking around the woods and pointing out all the different things that were happening that week and just be a weekly thing. Yeah. Kind of what you're doing with your tour, but, um, but we wanted to put it up on the idea was to put it up on YouTube, put it up on our Facebook and then kind of have it be like a video phonology journal of hey this is what's happening at least in our neck of the woods on uh on may 4th this week and uh and kind of go through it that way so someone someone will will make some money off of that i'm sure it might not be us but and and i think people would be really receptive for for our last episode of the buzz we did um we have a a segment called that's hot where we each tom and i each pick out a plant that Mm -hmm. we've noticed in the nursery or in the wild that that's hot at the time and i i had selected skunk cabbage because the one lone one in my yard popped up and i on twitter's people start saying oh you know i went for a walk and was looking for it and and they were taking pictures and sharing it like hey look what i was able to find so it just it's a nice conversation i think that's your million dollar idea yeah i would i would tune into that series yeah sounds great actually because you you know more than i do what i was going to say is (laughs) there's so much knowledge to retain and if you're not Mm -hmm. using it every day like when we were doing trees last week i couldn't remember all my leaf types Um, like i'm trying to like oh is this a pinnate is this a you know a palmate like it's if you're not using it every day it's hard so if it's something you you rarely see it's hard to recall that Mm -hmm. at at least in my age it is (laughs) no you're totally right and i'm lucky because the various activities i do whether they be teaching or research these things just come up all the time. So I'm mm-hmm. always, I have to brush up on it all the time because it's it's in my face all the time, you know? So, you know, given that that you're walking through and doing this walk, nature walk uh, every week, you you have an idea or you're getting to see, if, if you don't do it often, you may not notice how forests change over time because our forests are changing. And to me, they're changing more quickly than ever before. For our listeners that may not know, because you may only have, you know, we have listeners in an urban environment um, or they they have such a small natural space that they can go to. And even a natural space, if you're not, if you don't know your, your plant material, you may not realize that half of that natural space is invasives or, mm-hmm. or non-natives. What, how would you define a healthy forest? If you were to just explain to someone if, if you're going to see a forest for the first time, what should they expect to see? Well, it depends on where you are and it depends okay. on uh, depends on so many different things. I, I wish there was this one thing that I could say, but I, I can say what what it's not. I mean, okay. it should have it, it shouldn't have a lot of invasives, right? Because yeah. that's going to dramatically reduce the number of other organisms that are there. So when you get these invasives and they start choking everything out, that's unfortunate. Garlic mustard is just terrible. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Japanese honeysuckle is straight up awful. At my nature park, Japanese honeysuckle is choking everything out. That and multiflora rose, right? And so what's not there are all of the plants that would have been, these different things that would have been the food for a number of different kinds of butterflies, for other kinds of insects, uh, for all kinds of wildlife, and they're they're missing because of these invasives. And, And another problem we have is 
sometimes the understory is dramatically altered because the deer are overpopulated, right? And so I'll see places and you'll walk through a forest and someone who's not aware will say, this looks really nice, there's trees, right? Um, but what they don't realize is all the plants that should be there and, and they're just they're just not familiar with that. And so I say, oh, look, this has all been mowed down by deer. There's very little in the understory. It's just there's no recruitment of young trees. Every sapling is just bit off. And so you get these old mature trees, but you're just not getting um, or at least more mature trees anyway. And you're, and you're just not getting a lot of the stuff that should be there. So yeah. you... and that was a. Uh kind of what i was hitting on in the in the beginning um was uh oh crap now i forgot what i was gonna say there <laughs> well but, it made me think of a story that you were saying i can't remember where you got it from about throwing a tennis ball in the oh forest. yeah so this was actually it was uh they talked about it on our episode with qdma yeah um the quality deer management association and i actually heard that from other people before we did that interview uh also with qdma which is now the National Deer Alliance. Okay. So if you're looking for for their website, it's a different website now. But um, they basically said if you were to take a, a tennis ball into the woods with you, or a football, and you threw it in any direction, if it went further than 10 feet, so as long as you weren't Fran throwing the, the football, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you shouldn't be able to find it. The, the, the understory should be so thick that it's almost difficult to find that. Uh, that tennis ball or football or whatever ball you brought with you. Um, you'd really have to get on your hands and knees and search. You definitely shouldn't be able to see it from where you're standing. Yeah. And that's the case now is, is um, like um, my old thinking of forests is, oh, it's nice. You can walk underneath all the trees. Yeah, there's some briars over there, but I'm going to steer clear of them. Or there's this over here. I'm going to steer clear of that. But I can walk from one side to the other. And this is most forests. Um, yeah. You go on the yeah. Concord Trail, which we talk about all the time. You go in the forest by our, our seed farm. I, there's houses that are probably 500 yards away, and I can see the houses even in the spring and summer when it should be pretty thick. Yeah. Um, and it is much thicker than now. Like now, you can see the houses yeah. clear as day. But even in the, the spring and summer, you can see right through and see yeah. houses on the other side. And that's not how it should be. No. And you see trees, and you hear birds, or you may see deer, and you mm -hmm. think, okay, this is this is wildlife. But what's missing is when you're missing that under understory, you're missing habitat, you're missing. Uh, food sources so there mm -hmm. there should be a lot more things there that aren't there i'm sure if you if you look hard there's there's things that play like if there's downed wood you, you know there's things there that maybe don't pop to your eye uh right from the get-go but there's there's a a good portion of that missing and there should be succession there should be different stages mm -hmm. um happening so you now you just have this old growth forest with so much missing so what i guess there's a thing called ecotone and and if you could explain to us what ecotone is and why ecotone is important to us sure i just want to one real quick thing yeah. um you said that you know it, it's a lot of his old growth it's actually there's actually very very little old growth oh, that's, now that's very true yeah. mm -hmm. but it's it's late middle-aged basically is what mm -hmm. it is yeah. yeah um and so there's a lot of forest that is maturing and if nothing happens uh, we have a decent amount of old growth maybe in 2050 60 years something like that but you know right now it's, it's late middle age and like you said there's there's not a lot of successional diversity here i mean it's all kind of the same these stands are really really even aged and naturally it wouldn't be like that mm -hmm. so um i mean just for those who don't know succession is after some sort of disturbance whether it be fire or windstorm or flooding whatever you're going to see areas that are going to get knocked down cleared stuff is going to get removed from the surface 
um, trees are going to be killed, you know, and you're going to see that species will then take over these denuded or otherwise altered areas. And then over time, those plant and insect and bird and everybody else communities will change and they will keep changing until eventually they get to a point where they may not change anymore. And we could call that old growth or climax. Um, and so, you know, fires are the most natural way that that would happen in our part of the world, right? Fires are natural here. I lived in Panama for a year and they have a lot of fire, um, you know, resetting of succession in there, but it's not natural and it does massive damage because their organisms are not, they're not, you know, evolved to deal with fire, but ours are. So fire is a very, very mm -hmm. natural thing. Yeah. When I was a kid, fire was this terrible thing. When I was mm -hmm. a kid, it was always like, only you can prevent forest fires. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get where it comes from, yeah. but it's more of a financial thing that had anything to do with ecology. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I was a kid and we were going to go on this big cross country trip. My father said, all right, get in the car. We're going to drive across America. We're going to see everything. We're going to see Mount Rushmore and all this stuff. It was awesome. <laughs> and we went out to Yellowstone National Park. And this is right around like 1988, right? And we went out to Na Yellowstone National Park and he was devastated because we got there and they closed part of the park for the first time ever in its history at this time because a giant percentage of it was on fire. Something like 800,000 acres hmm. was wow. on fire, wow. like massive, massive fire. And my father was like, oh my God, it's all been destroyed and ruined. And I, I remember saying, and here I am, I'm like 12. I, I read something that said fire is good. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I hear there's a lot of organisms that come in after a fire. So let's go to some places that aren't closed where there's already been a fire and see what's there. And oh my God, it was alive. I mean, all of the beetles, mm -hmm. there was tons and tons of what we call bupressid beetles, a type of jewel beetle. They were all flying around and they were right in the trees. They had just been killed by fire. There were all kinds of woodpeckers and sap suckers. And I was just sort of amazed at like, hey, nobody nobody knows this. There's this whole world of stuff that's here after the fire. And, uh, you know, but we were always told it's destructive and, and it's the end. Like that's the end of yeah. that forest. The fire destroyed it, you know? And uh, it's unfortunate that that's how people think. I totally forgot your question. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> we we were we were talking about ecotone. That's no, that's that's great because actually before we go to that, I, you know, speaking about successional forests, with where we're at, I, I guess in our history of man, mm -hmm. is a successional forest even? Can it even naturally occur anymore in New Jersey? Like is, or or you know we're we're so built up at this point like i looked at i was telling tom we we talked about invasives and there was a natural area uh right around the corner from me and within you know i i don't even know like a quarter of an acre it was so compacted with bradford pear that no. you couldn't even get it you you couldn't have walked three feet into this stand it was nothing but bradford pear it killed everything else off you know, and and that was an area that was open area, and you could see that there was a row at a at a mall that's now closed of Bradford pear that would probably plant it like 30, 40 years ago, um, and, and it's like I'm wondering like, and and on the other side of that was a forest, so it kind of like it missed a step, like invasives came in and took that away, or we're constantly destroying things. It can I, I don't know if it if if the successional forest can naturally would occur here. I, I don't even know if if I'm just being dram overly dramatic. No, or... I mean it's a good question. Um, yes, yes it can, but you know we've got more 
more things hampering it than we ever mm -hmm. had before, yeah. right? But I don't, so one of the problems that I see in ecology and conservation is this sort of all or nothing mentality. I'm not saying you have this. I'm yeah. just saying I see this all yeah. the time, mm -hmm. which is like, well, invasives are a problem, so don't even bother. They're just yeah. going to take everything mm -hmm. over and just give up. And I think this is a terrible, terrible mentality. I've heard this as a counter argument to creating young forests. Well, there's lots of invasives, so, you know, you got that new problem. It's like, okay, great, but then we're giving up on biodiversity if we do yeah. this. You yeah. know, we have to manage. We have to try to work on new solutions, um, things like biocontrol, things like maybe sometimes we don't have a choice, but we have to selectively use herbicides. Maybe mm -hmm. we can do mechanical things. Maybe fire works. Some cases it doesn't. Some cases it does. And it's hard, but we're going to have to work. You know, it's just mm -hmm. not going to happen the same way anymore. There's no question. Uh, but I, I really don't think we should say, you know, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, you know, there's yeah. still good out there. We, we agree with you 100%. Yeah. Oh, and, definitely. And uh, probably going back a month ago, we talked about an article that was written about Oahu saying that it really wasn't a natural ecosystem anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You should just let it be. You know, it was just kind of like throw your hands up and say. Yeah. And then you and, had that other article yeah. right after that that was the same thing. Yeah, it was... where it was just like uh, it's it's performing functions, but there's so many functions that you've lost. And you may be at mm -hmm. a 10 on something that this is performing, but – a natural ecosystem would have performed 20 at, at a seven to a 10, you know, and it's, it's what you're missing out by giving up. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, I, I just think it's making it harder, you know, oh, yeah. with, and it's, it's just like, I'm wondering if, or even maybe a, a successional forest can occur, but at the, is it at the same quality? Like, mm -hmm. are there too many obstacles at this point? point from allowing it to happen naturally well and there are places where it does actually it's not always a problem with invasives yeah. there okay. are there are times where that doesn't happen and again maybe it won't be 100 percent, but certain parts of that structure of that, that young successional forest may be functioning very well and other parts like maybe you know ground cover or some parts of shrub layer may be more impacted than others mm -hmm. and so doesn't mean we have to give up all the value and all this different sort of structural parts of that because some of it is being impacted. Right. I mean, again, I, I'm going to say it again. Let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good here. I mean, we can still do better. A young successional forest has so much value that to just give up on that stage is to give up on the vast majority of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree. So we, yeah. we, we I guess this would be a good place to bring up ecotone. Yeah. So this ecotone is a term that you use in a lot of your presentation. And um, I think it's an, at least from my perspective, it seems like it's an underused or, or maybe misunderstood or um, that might not even be the right word either. It's a term that a lot of people aren't familiar with. I feel like it, sure. who's the, the pig on the Looney Tunes at the end? Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like that. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. That's all. No, but um, <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's something a lot of people aren't familiar with. But it is a term that we should know and we should be familiar with. Can you explain like what an ecotone is, why it's important, um, that those kind sure. of things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an ecotone is going to be an area of transition between one successional stage. So let's say a you know late middle-aged forest, which is, you know, a common successional stage that we're dealing with now. Um, and let's say an abandoned old field that used to be agriculture and it, they let it go. And it's been a couple of years since it's been mowed. And there's these, these two habitats, both of which is, you know, some great biodiversity in them. And then you get to this area in between where certain species will start to fill that in. that aren't going to be found 
in either other habitat because it's got the right properties. Let's say there's a shrub that can't handle getting sunblasted all day. It's not going to live out in the open field, but it can't handle being in the dark either. So it's not going to be in the understory of that uh, middle-aged forest. So maybe there's this whole neat area here where you end up getting this diversity and it's different than either habitat. And not only that, you're going to get all kinds of diversity at this edge area, at this ecotone. It's going to be stuff from the forest that wants to live right on the edge. They'll still go back in the forest to live, but maybe come to that edge to hunt. Um, things like birds. There's a lot of birds that do this. And then all these things that live in the field, but maybe want to be next to that shadier area next to that forest. And so you're going to end up with this. And then you get ecotone specialists, things that only live in the ecotone that will not live in either habitat themselves. So you get this massive overlap of diversity of both areas, plus an additional diversity component. And so ecotones are awesome. Unfortunately, again, you're always going to have to deal with invasives. But at the same time, I can tell you, there's a lot of healthy ecotones out there that just, if I want to find insect diversity, that's one of your best bets is to go to a really nice ecotone. Power line cuts end up being ecotones mm -hmm. a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, that was going to be my follow up is what, at least in, in New Jersey and the mid Atlantic, what does an ecotone look like? If I, if I don't know what an ecotone is and I want to visit one, where am I going to, to find that kind of stuff? And what am I going to see when I get there? What kind of plants, what kind of animals, those kind of things? My one uh, close colleague and I joked that there are species of plants whose natural environment is a power line right away because we can only <laughs> find them in power lines. That's it, because there's some of the best ecotones left in a lot of cases. You get your forest on both sides and then they get mowed at periodical intervals, like every three mm -hmm. years or something like that. So you end up getting all this cool young successional stage, some ecotone components for sure that have these long lines. So you get lots of this ecotone on both sides. And, you know, it's just amazing the diversity of wildflowers, of insects, of, you know, things that you just can't find too many other places. It's great. Um, and where are their natural ecotones? Ooh, I mean, again, if you can find a really good area of a forest that's next to a field is, is a good one. I mm -hmm. remember at Brigantine Wildlife Refuge uh, when I was a kid, I would find bobwhite. You can't find bobwhite there mm -hmm. anymore. Um, and it was... the awesome awesome field to forest ecotones that they had all over the place because they had they had fire management you know they would let fires mm -hmm. create disturbances they would and then that's where the ecotones happen where the disturbance ends that's where it's gonna that's where you're gonna see that interface right so the fire burns out there's the forest you got your new ecotone nice you, you know it's funny when it, the first things i thought of was we we keep talking about with with deer issues we keep creating more edge habitat by uh, yeah. kind of dislocating our our forests mm -hmm. but we're not necessarily creating healthy edge habitat by doing that i i would assume yeah yeah exactly okay so, deer so just like again like tom was talking about in the understory where you can throw a football and easily find it it's the same thing a lot of these things that would have grown in these ecotones they never get very big because the deer just mow them down so mm -hmm. it's, it's it's very difficult to see um you know in my talk I tried to, the, 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 I know you went to Tom, mm -hmm. you know, I tried to talk about plants that are native that could be used to create ecotones. They're nice shrubs mm -hmm. and that are relatively deer resistant because nothing is deer proof. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you know this. You, oh, yeah. you, you guys know this. There's no such thing as deer proof. I mean, they'll eat 
I think they'll eat plastic plants if they're hungry enough. You know? <laughs> I don't doubt that either. I think that's possible. <laughs> well, that's a, that brings yeah. up a great point, though. Before we end this, I want to make sure that we bring up like maybe some ideas that our listeners can do. What what can they do in their space if they have uh, – like I know I, I live in a – pretty unique area where Mm -hmm. in my backyard i have an eastman because i have two pipelines and then i have a brief forest and then the turnpike so you know i have that little bit of that ecotone because it's it's never mowed you know you have this forest and then Mm -hmm. a transition because of the pipeline much like a like a power line so maybe if if other people are in that same situation maybe we can mention a couple of those plants that will help help with that and i had the deer love that pipeline because it's open and they can just it's it's a smooth smooth yeah. stroll oh, yeah. like there's there's no obstructions they just go from one one place to another so with with edge habitat so we talked about deer so, well, we want to talk about what are some of those shrubs oh, that do you want to do it now i was going to save it towards the oh end. okay well, yeah we can do it that way can, is that okay you, yeah cool. oh yes that's okay. what that works all right the um <laughs> since we're on hedge habitat and i was thinking about how deer we, we were saying how deer can can be an enemy of edge habitat are there Mm. other enemies of edge habitat that are preventing it from being more productive or even exist like healthy Um, edge habitat i should say or a healthy ecotone well i mean it's it's honestly it's mostly the invasives more than even deer i mean it's just Mm -hmm. you know you get you get your uh really really just common multiflora rose is an awful one that i see all the time and Again, I'm just looking at my particular park, and multiflora rose and Japanese honeysuckle just dominate edges. They really do. Um, in fact, the Japanese honeysuckle will create a wall, and it will twist around all the trees that are near the edge. And you know, I I don't know if it can actually kill them or not, but it kind of looks like it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> we keep coming back to invasives, but you know, it's it's a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's. Would you feel? what which habitat would you feel is at the greatest risk right now is it edge habitat like we we're saying like that's that ecotone is very important is that at at the biggest risk or or what would you say the biggest risk were would be for any of the habitats um yeah that's a good question well the habitat that i think is honestly the most endangered is one we haven't even talked about at all which is native grasslands mm-hmm. and yes we had native grasslands here in all the way up into the mid-atlantic and yeah. you know very few people know this there's there's a great um organization that uh, southeastern grassland initiative mm-hmm. that is trying to you know bring some of this information to people and say hey look you know because if you, your average person in new jersey thinks grasslands occur in like Nebraska. That's they're gonna think <laughs> oh, yeah. Nebraska. Yeah. They're, not, they're not thinking Maryland. They're not thinking New Jersey. That's not you know, it's just not what they would have thought of. But I mean so many great wildflowers, so much diversity in this area, and lots of insects that are incredibly hard to find now as a result of this, you know? And I think so when, I, yeah, go ahead. And when I think when people see that they feel it's unnatural. Like they yeah. don't have that connection with it. They see it and they're like, oh, this this isn't what should be here. Yeah, and that's what uh, we actually had Dr. Dwayne Estes from SGI on. Uh, it was episode 20. Okay. I had to wow. look it up. But um, And that was one of the things when I look at their map, I was always surprised. We had like southeastern grasslands in, in the Pine Barrens. And he's like, yeah. And then the more we talked about it, it sounds the, the pine savannas that they have in uh, Alabama and Georgia and um, even in the North Carolina and like Tennessee, 
are very similar to what we have in the Pine Barrens. And through that, similar to that they required fire and similar in that uh, just species. And he even, I think I, this was last spring. At the time, he described a, a scenario and he's like, oh, yeah, you probably have pine trees and then underneath you have like inkberry holly and blueberry and then you don't really have much else underneath and i'm like oh crap. i just walked through the pine <laughs> that's what i saw that was it it was like four and then there's some green briar thrown in and uh and then some mountain laurels when you got like to a yeah. sunnier spot <laughs> like yeah that was it that was i didn't really notice um any other else. that was the the dominating vegetation for sure and he said when you open it up to some sunlight and you let some other things through it's amazing the species that you see pop up and it's like, oh, you'll go from uh, it being dominated by those three or four species to having, like, distinct diversity of, like, 20 or 30 species. And they were even saying, like, they had prairies where they had 400 different species of plants in it. It was insane. Wow. So, but no, that, yeah. they're a great group. And it's amazing that they're doing work up here as well. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely great. And um, you run into this problem with the average person, which is they've been told their whole lives that, this deep dark forest that's what nature is mm -hmm. right that's what nature is and so when i see something that's a like big area of sand swales and it's got some grasses and so like some natural sort of sand mm -hmm. blowout in the pine barrens i think that looks awesome and i know that i'm going to find mm -hmm. the beetles that i study because they live in those places mm -hmm. and i think your average person sees waste area like yeah. this could be a housing development yeah. or this could be a forest. Anything's better, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. the idea is that these are these are waste areas. I've, I've heard it described as a waste area. You know, I've even heard that described as a waste area by conservationists. And so I was a little disappointed, <laughs> wow. not going to name any names, but I've, I've heard this done a couple of times. I'm like, really? You know? Wow. That's, so, you, you know, it's funny because I'm looking at one of the questions that we had to ask you, and now I'm totally looking at it in a completely different way. I'm starting to question myself because one of the things we wanted to ask was, do you feel that our forests are being managed properly? And now I'm wondering, is it the forests that are being managed properly or improperly, or is it our our private spaces that are being mm -hmm. managed improperly, or is it is it a combination of both? Is it all of the above? I mean, I think it's all of the above, and I, I think the – I mean, the number one problem besides just land, uh, taking land and turning it into, you know, housing developments and agricultural fields and just losing that land. Mm -hmm. But besides habitat loss is his has to be fire suppression. I mean, and fire suppression is rampant in the eastern United States. And so the question is, what can we do to either have direct fire management, which is unpopular in some places, right, mm -hmm. or do things that at least reasonably mimic fire like selective logging ecologically minded logging you know which mm -hmm. that is a thing and there's lots of data on this and i presented some of this in my talk i mean the science is absolutely unequivocal on this you know people get very upset i i didn't expect my talk to be quite as contentious as it was <laughs> um, but it sure was and it really came down to i had one person tell me i love the first half of your talk and it was like the second half is where I talked about management. And so it was like, I love the first half. And there was no comment on the second half, which, you know, obviously tells me um, that they did not love the second half of my talk. And mm -hmm. the science was the same in both. It was yeah. based on theory. It was based on experiments. And it was based on observations. You had every possible type of data. All the data brought to bear on it was equally rigorous in the first and second half of my talk. But as soon as you start talking about cutting down trees, 
people get very irrational, quite frankly. I'm just going to mm -hmm. be blunt, um, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so there's things or, you know, there's cherry picked science where it's like, well, there's this one thing that says you shouldn't do it. Well, what about the other 49 things that I just mentioned? But there's this one thing that says sometimes you shouldn't <laughs> yeah. do it. You know? And it's like it's confirmation bias is what a lot of it comes down to, you know. And yeah. believe me, let me make it really clear. I'm not saying to cut down all of our forests. I never said that. I've made it abundantly clear that I wasn't saying that. We don't have a lot of young forests and we don't have a lot of old growth forests either, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We have a lot more potential for old growth forests. And if we don't do anything, we don't have a lot of potential for young forests. That's the biggest problem is fire has been stopped. Mm -hmm. There's houses yeah. everywhere, you know? What are you gonna do? We just, we don't have a lot of fire. And so, you know, it may be that we need some prescribed burns, but we also may need to do reasonable thinning that, that mimics some of it. And not all of the forest, of course, but just, no. but parts of it. Mm -hmm. It might be necessary to do that, you know? You know, um, it, the, yeah. the, the funny thing is this has been a reoccurring, like a mile, like it, we've never really expanded on it, but a lot of our guests like Jay Allen, uh, uh, mentioned it. Jay Kelly. Jay Kelly. Wow. Dr. Jay Kelly. Dr. Jay Kelly. Sorry. <laughs> no, wow. Okay. <laughs> and uh, John Park uh, mm -hmm. from New Jersey Audubon have all kind of said this for for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's I think before man got here, the man the the forest managed itself. Well, we prevented from managing itself. When you look mm -hmm. at the pine barrens and how things have evolved to handle fire, yeah. like pitch pitch pine and cones or. I'm going to somewhat – I don't want to say disagree. We're talking about the same things, but okay. I don't necessarily think – and, Dan, you may disagree with me as well. Um, I don't necessarily think the forest managed itself. It's just things would get to a point where they were no longer sustainable, and then you would have a natural disaster. Yeah. Um, or, or sometimes it was not – it was, was sustainable, and you just had a natural disaster, like a hurricane. Yeah. Uh, last year we had a hurricane, and along the Garden State Parkway getting towards Cape May – there was a huge blowdown, and all these trees blew down. Yeah. Those trees were probably healthy, but it definitely took down the unhealthy trees. Yeah. Um, but, like, you look at the natural occurring forest fires that we have now, especially in out west, is a lot of it is because they are just full of fuel, and it became a powder keg, and it just took a little thing to set them off. It wasn't necessarily that the forest managed itself. It's that we've prevented it from a, a natural disaster from happening no, is... is we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. I just don't think it's no, because I, I think like yeah. to me, like those, some of those forest fires out west were started by. They weren't natural. They were mm -hmm. were humans doing it, yeah. but because yeah. they prevent fire and so much thing, maybe it spread. Because yes. if yeah. it was it was occurring more often, yeah. maybe it wouldn't. Before we were here, if if lightning struck and a fire happened, no one was here to put it out. Exactly, it just yeah. went until it was out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if – sorry, Tom and I are going on <laughs> yeah. one tangent. No, no, that's fine. Uh, no, I, I understand. I think I agree with the general thrust of what you guys are saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and a lot of it comes down to we had these disturbances so frequently and there was so much land that was natural that it, it, it did manage itself in a sense mm -hmm. because there we hadn't altered the natural processes yet. So mm -hmm. since we have, now we have to manage it. It's sort of like – I'm going to make an absurd comparison here. It's sort of like, sort of like if you hit somebody with your car and you get out of your car and you're like, oh my God, they're bleeding. They're, you could you could say, well, I hit them, but the damage is done. Let me just let, hopefully they'll heal on their own. I'm just going to let them bleed to death in the street or they yeah. fix themselves. I don't know, but I walk away now. Yeah. Or you take them to the hospital. You created the situation. You fix it, right? Mm -hmm. We created the problems with invasive species. We created the problems with, you know, 
fire suppression. We mm. have to do something now. Like there's yeah. hands off doesn't work anymore. It yeah. can't work because there isn't enough left to allow these processes to work the way they used to. They don't, you know, it's yeah. everything is horribly fragmented. The total amount of land has changed, you know, that's, that's natural. Um, and so, you know, but I think a big problem is that people don't understand that disturbance is natural. I mentioned, yeah, yeah. you know, the forest fires in, in Yellowstone. And I read a recent review and synthesis of fire prevalence in Appalachian forests, And it demonstrated that fires were frequent and extensive because I hear this one too. People say, oh, you know, the Pine Barrens needs fire, but don't don't touch northwestern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. That's not true. That is absolutely completely at odds with prevailing data on this is there were fires. You know, yeah. that mm -hmm. was something that happened. Um, it's almost impossible to happen now because, again, of all the houses. But, um, you know, it's just I think disturbance is, is a good thing and it's hard, hard to get away with without having disturbance. Yeah. Know? And, and unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say fortunately or unfortunately, it depends on what side of the corner you're on. We have to do a lot of man-made disturbance now. And I, I mentioned before, mm -hmm. there's a Facebook group called Native Habitat Managers, and it kind of just is a, a bigger group that talks about a lot of things that um, National Deer Line, some of the practices they're talking about practices national wild turkey federation is talking about um and then uh um there's another podcast called land legacy which is managing uh habit their business is actually managing habitats uh for wildlife but they're using prescribed fire they're using uh different timber management techniques and i've taken a lot of this and we actually you mentioned bob white before we're hopefully going to get approved to become part of the um there's an NRCS equip program to bring Bob White back to New Jersey, which they've been doing at Pine Island. And now hopefully we're going to have some at our seed farm here. But oh, part of the, the prescription that we're looking at is we have a, a only five acres of, of semi-mature forest, like the middle-aged forest that you're talking about before in the back of this property. And what we're going to do is look at the, the trees and say, okay, well, there is a ton of, sweet gum back there we don't need as much sweet gum it's not the most beneficial tree and a lot of them are, are younger so we're gonna go and cut some down we're gonna hinge cut some where you're actually only cutting part of the way through letting it fall over so the tree is technically still alive it's just now on its side and um and it'll die a little bit slower death but by having that canopy flush out now at ground level you're providing food for so many different things and then that whole treetop is now protecting everything that's underneath of it so the deer where they used to you'd have stuff that germinate they used to come and just gobble it right up well now you have a whole bunch of tree branches there so the deer can't get in there it's almost like a natural fence and it's at the same time providing some food so we're looking at doing a lot of this stiff stuff looking at what speed or what trees okay we have some some um red oaks back there so we'll, we're gonna look and say well this isn't a healthy red oak so it, we can just let it die naturally or we could take it down now and and just accelerate that process let some more light from uh through the canopy we don't want to increase like our light to 20 or 30 percent instead of five to ten percent so it's never going to happen naturally or it, it might in 20 30 40 years but that's a lot of missed time that we're allowing things like multiflora rose and japanese barberry and uh other invasive species come in and now we're we're waiting on that seed bank and hoping that it's going to be resilient enough with all this new competition. So 
yeah, it's some of it has to be done by man now, and that's I think where a lot of the controversy comes with some of your talk too is people don't want to do it, but they just think nature will well, heal. Let me let me yeah. ask both of you yeah. this ethical question, and based based on this conversation, I love this conversation because yeah. it's making me think. So. <laughs> which I don't do too often. So. <laughs> so say you have like Sourlands Conservancy. We've had mm-hmm. Carolyn Cloud on here and, and they've talked about their initiative because in the Sourlands they're estimating they're going to lose, uh, I can't remember the number, 20,000 uh, ash trees in their forest due to emerald ash borer. So are we doing it a disservice by replacing those trees or is it – you, you figure over time – Things have adapted. We lost mm-hmm. chestnuts. The forest adapted. Other species became more prevalent. I know it's a different time now. You know, you've lost elms due to Dutch elms disease. These are all things that we've we've altered by bringing these things mm-hmm. here. Um, is do you plant replant those trees, or or do you you know are we doing the the forest a disservice by trying to let it heal on its own? Is it are we way too far past that where a forest can heal itself with the seed bank or do we need to go in and help it or is that something we don't know yet that's a great question um i wish i had a great answer um you know that's it's a difficult question and you know my mind is racing thinking of pros and cons for both sides you know Mm -hmm. i mean there's definitely um it's a problem that wouldn't normally happen on this scale in this time frame and now anything that happens is somewhat unnatural right there's just just doing nothing is somewhat unnatural doing something is somewhat unnatural you know um i don't know i i want to think about that one more and um because i don't i don't want to i want to pretend that i have an answer for that problem if i had an answer for that problem (laughs) i would be ripped (laughs) (laughs) you know what what i think they're part of what they're doing which i think is a great idea is that they're trying to get ahead of it and have residents Mm -hmm. in that area plant native trees and shrubs in their properties to help combat so that there is habitat maybe not in the same spot but in different spots and Mm -hmm. i i don't think you can plant too many native trees or native plants that can't hurt you you know but it's they're trying to get ahead of it so when it happens they're not necessarily going to plant a tree where that tree came down they're they're creating habitat elsewhere Mm -hmm. which i guess would happen naturally if we weren't here anyway so Mm -hmm. i I'm sorry. Oh, I was no. I was just gonna say, uh, we're gonna change the subject a little bit. We've talked about succession a couple of times on a, in the, today's episode, but I don't, I don't want to just gloss over it. Yeah, Dan and Bill. We actually have a video that Bill Young did for uh, on succession on our YouTube channel. And um, actually, when you gave your your last presentation, he wrote me that night and said. You need to take my video down and have Dan Dan do it instead. So, well, a very so, nice thing for Bill to say. But Bill's wonderful himself, so yeah. he, I'm sure it was great. Do you do you mind running through just uh in like five minutes or less? This is a big ask. In five minutes or less, the the basics of succession and how it works. Um. Yeah, I think I could try to do that. Man, you're gonna put me on the spot. Yeah. I'm not starting a timer, so if you go to like seven or ten, <laughs> no, I'm not gonna I'm cut you off. Okay, so I mean, the general idea is some sort of disturbance, right? Mm-hmm. You've got fire, you've got a windstorm, you've got flooding, you've got a hurricane, something that's going to take out a lot of the living things from an area, it's going to clear things out. Um, and then what's going to happen is you have certain species that will take over right after that disturbance that come up 
They could be things that are in the seed bank that were already sitting there waiting for this disturbance. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, this is my time. And they start to germinate and they go real quick. We could say that the species that come up first after a disturbance are, are selected. This is an ecological term, which means they are really selected to have a lot of offspring. Mm -hmm. R comes from reproduction. So they're gonna have tons and tons of offspring. Those offspring will be small and they will grow fast. And so they're going to be very good in disturbed areas and they're very good at taking over quickly, colonization, growth. They are not good at competing long-term. They have mm -hmm. no chance of surviving there. If things keep going this way over years, they're going to get pushed out. But mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because they're going to be tracking the next disturbance. They're gonna be sending out propagules. And as soon as there's another disturbance nearby, they'll recolonize that. So they're gonna keep mm -hmm. constantly moving around in time and space. They don't last. Um, and I guess from a um, sort of wild, uh, for a native plant growing organization, you probably have some species that are like this, that they're not oh, yeah. gonna live there yeah. for very long, but they're gonna look great for a couple of years. And mm -hmm. then, you know, they're yep. gonna kind of wink out. Um, so after that happens, you're going to get things like perennial grasses and shrubs. They're going to come in and they're going to start to take over and they're going to elbow a little bit. They're going to really end up pushing out some of these first early successional species and they're going to get their roots in there. They're going to live for a few years. They're going to live a little bit longer. Um, and as time goes on, you're going to keep seeing things that are getting physically bigger and longer lived. That is going to be a trend is bigger and longer lived as time goes on. Ultimately, this will turn from some annual grasses to perennial grasses, to some shrubs, to some young trees, to shrubs and young trees. So now you're getting to be like a forest that will eventually become a completely closed forest or nearly so, where the trees are touching enough at the top that they're blocking out most of the sunlight. When you hit that canopy closure, you know, you could say that you're now, it's really a forest. It's not a shrub layer, it's a forest. And that forest is gonna have trees that might live for decades to hundreds of years, you know, potentially things like oaks, they're going to be excellent at taking advantage of resources and will outcompete everybody else. Mm -hmm. So like in the pine barrens, for example, pine trees or earlier successional trees, they're going to, you're going to get pine forests very quickly. If you mm -hmm. don't do anything, if there's no fire, if there's no disturbance, those pine trees are not great competitors long-term oaks will push them out. And so we often refer to forest by sort of who's dominant. We could mm -hmm, say yeah. it's a pine, pine forest. It's almost all pines. Pine oak, you know, we've got mostly pines, some oaks. Oaks eventually take over. It becomes oak pine. And then when all of the pines are gone, it's oak, oak. And that's what happens if you don't do anything. Okay. And mm -hmm. then, you know, that can last that way for hundreds of years for a very yeah. long time, potentially indefinitely like that. Right. Um, and every time, you know, as you and the birds, too. Birds are easy because you can see um, birds, you know, by by simply counting them with binoculars, and you can watch how the, the bird community changes over time. Insects are a little tougher, but we know that they change over time as well too. Um, and the plants are the basis for every ecosystem. The plants are what's going to create that structure and that food for everybody else. And so we often, when we talk about ecological succession, we often think of it from the plants first, you know, because mm -hmm. that makes sense. That's yeah. That's really what's going on. Everybody follows the plants. Um, anything that you want me to say besides that? No, that that was basically it. I guess the and, only thing I'd add is so that that when you say right after, so the disturbance and right after, how long of a time frame is that? Are we? I'm assuming it's really in like a couple days is when you'd probably start to see stuff maybe germinate. There, um, there can be, it can be days, it can be weeks, it can be months, but I mean, it can be days. And then how long does that part of the cycle last? Is it 
two years or, or longer? Well, I mean, we're trying to, we're kind of trying to put bins around. You know, um, you know, a lot of times people say one to two years mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. But it's, uh, it's just changing continuously the whole time. And then realistically at any time during that, that whole timeline, nature could hit reset here's a fire here's a windstorm here's some kind of here's an earthquake some kind of disturbance start at square one again um and that's i guess where we we started talking about is we don't get as much of that now because we've put in so many practices to not have fires or we're making things i guess we're making buildings earthquake proof or hurricane proof but um and in a lot of cases we're taking out the the ecological buffers that we would have that would help with hurricanes I, and, and, and those kind of things. And I guess in a healthy ecosystem, mm-hmm. you should have all of those things happening yeah. at some point mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. And, and that's where you get your biodiversity. So how do you feel that we're at, an, at a critical time as far as the biodiversity of, of native plants in, in our ecosystem here in New Jersey? Well, I mean, so many of our plants that are rare and so many of our insects on so many of our birds they are going to be specialists on early successional stages and so while we need every stage and we do and you know the great eugene odom the ecologist wrote this excellent paper in 1963 about all of this and 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 many more topics and did simulations and talked about what we know and what we don't know but one of the great quotes from there uh and i don't remember the exact quote so i'm paraphrasing was that we need all of this. We need waste places. He used the term waste places, which I love. Yeah. Uh, we need early successional habitats. We need deep, dark forests. We need all of these things. We need lakes. We need ponds. We need streams. And so all these habitats and successional stages are important. But as he showed and many others have showed over and over again, if you just care about maximizing diversity, the early successional stages are more important. They are. There's no way to get around that, right? That's just mm-hmm. These yeah. are just facts. Um, and so if you look at our rare plants, so many of them are early successional specialists or ecotone specialists. And ecotones are effectively like an early successional habitat mm-hmm. in many ways, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I'm sure you at Highlands Nursery must grow, you know, a, a decent number of, of rare plants, right? I mean, you guys do some rare things. I don't know that I, I don't know that we do, to be honest, because okay. they, for what drives most of what we do would be the the kind of restoration that's being done mm-hmm. so if if yeah. rare plants occur you know rarely then you know it's it, it's a very specific thing the other thing that we've 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 noticed is some of these very rare plants are very hard to to reproduce to, mm-hmm. in, a, in a nursery setting or they may need a coexistence of another plant in order to to help guide them along so it's yeah. Oh, yeah. and like and Maryland gold master. yeah 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 and another uh, reason why we don't do some of this is because of the, I guess the, and we're not going to get into this today because it'll be a four-hour podcast. <laughs> is the, uh, <laughs> the I know where you're going. Is with the it. the social aspect of it. There are some things that, in our opinion, um, you're looking at, and it's you have a rare species in New Jersey, and it's this is going to go extinct unless we do something. Yeah. Why not get it into the the hands of the trade where our our skill set is making more of those um so that it doesn't go extinct and use it to bolster existing populations but the the counter argument is well we don't want to introduce new genetics 
this is how nature is supposed to happen. It's supposed to fade out, but uh, so yeah, I, I understand well, both sides, but me, that's one of the reasons why we don't do some of the rare stuff to, as well. To me, ethic before we go into yeah. it, to me ethically too, like we've had listeners going, "Well, I want this rare plant and I want to put it in my yard." Well, it, it wouldn't naturally occur there. I don't believe you yeah. should put it there because that's not where it belongs. Yeah. And then yeah. you have, if you have such a minute community, is it ethically right to collect that seed? Mm-hmm. To, and take it away from there to grow more plants unless it's going – those plants are going to go back there. Mm-hmm. And then are you cheating sure. a little bit? Like I don't know the – like how do, you, how do you feel we should best serve some of these rare plants? Okay. So yeah, I can see we're going to go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, I'll, that's I'll try fine. to minimize oh, – great. I'll have another thing I'm contentious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so – what should we do about rare species in the state? I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll I'll be honest again because I can all, that's all I should do. Um, I think that we should be more active. You know, we mm-hmm. should be actively managing for them because, as one of you guys said, I can't remember who it was. If you do nothing, they're going to go extinct. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not yeah. even a question. Doing nothing is almost as bad as saying let's just rip them all up and put a housing development on them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Many of these species were well past the point of just putting a fence around them and saying, leave them alone and they'll be fine. They won't be fine, right? Mm-hmm. They may be below some minimum viable population numbers. They may have genetic issues. They may have issues with habitat management where without fire, they're going to go away. And so if you just put a fence around it and say, don't touch it and you don't fire manage, they will go away anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are all things. And so my take would be you do the best science in the most reasonable time frame that you can and make the most informed decisions that you can. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have 50 years to study plant X and say, oh, well now, now that we've studied every last tiny little detail of every single bit of minutia about it and we have, you know, decades and decades of data, now we can act on it. Almost everything is gone before you can do that. Mm-hmm. If it was rare, it doesn't have 50 years. You know, most things that are rare don't have 20 years. They don't have, mm-hmm. they may not have 10 years, you know? Yeah. And so um, I think that you have to do the best science that you can. You actively manage when you can. Doing nothing is like being a historian. You're like, okay, well, let's monitor, let's monitor, let's watch, let's watch it go extinct and just write about what happened and 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 sit here on the sidelines and watch it go extinct. I don't believe in that. I know some people are going to be mad that I said this, but um, I I do believe that you should get involved and do something. I'm working right now on on a um, conservation genetics project looking to see we have a species that's rare uh, a rare milkweed and see what would happen if we were to introduce very very regional genetics not ones from florida not ones from the carolinas not even ones from maryland but regional genetics from delaware just across the dotted line and what would that do to the overall fitness of this plant and the ability for it to reproduce on its own because right now it can't and it's down to a couple dozen plants and that's all that's left and so if we do nothing within 20 years for sure it's extinct you know mm-hmm. or extirpated we should say from the state so again you do the best science you can you document things but it, you can't do 100 years of science we yeah. can't give it a century or, or otherwise what's the point of even doing it anyway yeah. because mm-hmm. again you're historians you're not doing science you're doing you're doing history you're mm-hmm. watching it happen yeah so i think i think in retrospect everyone has you know, if you have the ability to look back, you have a way different opinion. I think if if we would have realized that carrier pigeons were going to go extinct because of all the logging, maybe we would have done some things to save them at that time. They probably didn't even realize they were going extinct mm-hmm. until they were pretty much yeah. extinct. Um, 
so I completely get that. You know, yeah. I, I guess the one thing we haven't even touched on, and, and you brought it up with local genetics, is local ecotype. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't even know where to start with that. Just, yeah, I, I was my simple question was how does that how does local ecotype fit into everything else we just talked about and i know that's another really complicated <laughs> complicated answer um for well, such okay, a simple so question say, I, i'm not sh- i want to make sure we're talking about the same thing because i've noticed that in the sort of the trade mm-hmm. the native plant trade people use the term ecotype different than an actual yes yeah topic. that's a great point um and i think how i how i wrote it when i was thinking of this question was more um I guess the first thing we should do is define ecotype how you define it because it is definitely different in the trade and and um uh, it's even so different I'm, from I'm supplier to supplier mean, so I'm, yeah i'm assuming that you mean local provenance right yeah yes yes. yes yeah okay so in the strict sense an ecotype would be a differentiated population um that had some genetic basis for it and in this mm-hmm. case we're just saying local provenance we're assuming there's a good chance there's some genetic distinctiveness but we don't know that so mm-hmm. that's fine so um what about local i mean it's important right um tom you were at one of my talks where i mentioned that i did some research at vanderbilt on a particular beetle where the same species salix bebiana bebs willow if you fed them ones from where they were from, from uh, New England, they fed on it regularly. It was their host plant. If you fed them ones from Oregon, which is the same taxonomic species and could be sold in the trade as, you know, native Bebs willow, mm-hmm. they wouldn't touch it. It was so genetically distinct from thousands of miles apart that they would not, they wouldn't feed on it. And so, you know, it, it may matter when you have a species with a very large range, it may turn out that um, it's not really the same everywhere. And so mm-hmm. having something regional is good. You know, having plants, if you want to plant something from the Pine Barrens and you live in the Pine Barrens and that same species is in North Carolina, you shouldn't be getting it from North Carolina. You should be getting it from, you know, somewhere in New Jersey stock. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you should be doing. Um, but, you know, it's super complicated. <laughs> How yeah. local is local enough? And do you always want them super local? Because then maybe you have inbreeding problems. So mm-hmm. um, like many things in life, I wish there was a simple like here's what you do and you always <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know it just you know biology is really ugly and messy and so my biggest recommendation that I say to people is try to get something from your region. Mm-hmm. If you live in Delaware and there's a nursery selling stuff that's Delaware or New Jersey or Pennsylvania stock go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you live in Delaware and there's somebody selling something from, you know, I don't know Wisconsin or Iowa maybe get the stuff from Delaware or New Jersey first, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's all I would say, you know, we, we say the same thing. We say, do your best. It's not always, you know, something's not always available at a local ecotype. There's not everyone that's doing it that way. Do your best. If you can't get close, maybe, maybe there's Mm -hmm. another plant that is local ecotype that you can use or not get something a little further away. Just don't go invasive. Don't go exotic. I feel better about our, our answer when we we were asked that question i yeah. can't remember his real name but dr evil we had the guy uh, dr evil yeah was dr evil and uh he asked us that question and that was kind of he asked us our in, answer was was really like do your best and but his he took it to another level because he he wanted to know wanted our answer based on climate change what's the best yeah, thing to, yeah. to do if you know the climate is changing and you're on a fringe area 
what is local provenance if you're trying to plant? I don't know that answer. Yeah. I don't know if you plant for today or you plant for tomorrow because nature would plan for today, mm-hmm. I would imagine. But I, I don't know that answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great. Again, these are some of the most complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like, you know, I have a PC for Vanderbilt and evolutionary ecology, and I'm like, I don't have any idea. What to about that, you know. So, I mean, it's it's uh, it is tough. Um, I mean, it really, and I think us also saying I don't know mm-hmm. is a reasonably is a reasonable answer. It's an honest answer, right? Yeah. I mean, I get asked that question all the time, and I'm still not sure what my answer is i mean you can see good arguments for either side mm-hmm, and yeah. you're going to make the best informed decision you can as often as you can and that's all mm-hmm. you can do you know i think the important thing is not not that we know the answers but at least we're talking about it we're having the conversations and maybe we ask better questions that get get us answers eventually you know but it's better than brushing over it and not discussing yeah. it at all yeah and speaking yeah. of not discussing at all, we've spent so much time on plants. <laughs> we have an entomologist here. We've asked really nothing about yeah. <laughs> about insects. So, you know, so and 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 we're guilty of this also because uh, we we've had the Xerxes Society on here, and we've had the National Bee Inventory and and, and uh, Audubon International, and we give so much love to to monarchs and bees. Is there an insect that's an unsung hero that that doesn't get the love that it deserves? That's that's a workhorse in our our ecosystem that we don't even discuss. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I would say flies, and I would specifically say hoverflies. Um, okay. Hoverflies are awesome. Hoverflies are more efficient pollinators than than butterflies in most cases. They're out early. They're out late. Even when a lot of things are not out, they come out very early in the season and they're all the way out until it's getting cold. Okay. And bees and butterflies might be ending their season and they're just still going. And not only that, not only are they great pollinators, but their young, their larvae, actually eat aphids. Oh. So they're both pollinators and predators. So they're biocontrol and pollination services all in one. I mean, and they're beautiful on top of everything else they're really just cool to look at there's a new field guide to the hoverflies um of i think eastern north america it's absolutely huge and it's just amazing to flip through i will never identify most of the species in that book but um it's it's great it's a really great group and flies in general just people hate flies right but uh most people don't know this there's actually a midge a tropical midge that pollinates almost all of our cacao plants which is what we get chocolate from. Mm-hmm. So without flies, you would have no chocolate. And we can't you have that. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> no, no, you I can't didn't. have that. It's... You know, and I, like you said, I think a lot of people yeah. hear flies and they're like, I don't want flies. Yeah. You know, flies I'm, are a nuisance to I'm me. I'm putting that one in the holster for when I give presentations. <laughs> I, there you go. Re- realistically, we, give, we pay so much attention to honeybees, and honeybees, when you really dig deep, are great for, commo- or I shouldn't say commodity crops, agricultural. but agricultural crops, but even... Like you said, chocolate is not honeybee pollinated. It's we just spend so much time thinking about honeybees when we talk about pollinators, and there's so yeah. many pollinators out there that but, are doing so much. There's a good reason so, for that, and yeah. I, I think I'm sorry, I'm going off so many tangents. <laughs> I, I think that's marketing this, because yeah. honeybees are be, honeybees are a huge industry yeah. mm-hmm. for us in the United States, and of course they're going to market it that they're important. It's it's never market it that yes these are not native it's just mm-hmm. how important they are but they don't talk about how important other bees are or other insects friend you better start I'm looking over your shoulder you're gonna have like the uh, <laughs> there's a red dot on yeah, your forehead I, right I, I think so 
<laughs> last week I, I took on companies that patent uh, yeah. native R's or cultivars of, of native mm-hmm. plants as marketing making you believe they're necessary when they're not necessary. I'm just exposing all of it. I'm going, <laughs> if I don't show up for work one day, no you know. No, that, that's an interesting point. And it's like you said last week, it's, uh, yeah, there is there is no, um, no conglomerate that is backing our native pollinators. There's no, there's no big money that's saying, oh yeah, we need to push all this marketing money into how important, because they, they they aren't generating a profit for anything. No, if if, so, if, if yeah, your if your pockets are lined with honey money, then you know <laughs> it's that, that was really funny. I don't know if you meant for that to be funny, <laughs> but it just came out right. <laughs> you know, if 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 you have something at stake, yeah, of course yeah. you're going to market yeah. it and put a positive spin on it of how important it is. But because you're controlling it, but native bees, if they're not, if you're not profiting it from it. Mm-hmm. There's no reason yeah. to market it yeah. other, you know, there there's a reason for a lot of this marketing and it's profit, unfortunately. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And actually, I gave a talk one time about pollinators. And one of the things that surprised a lot of people was that all around the world, native pollinators are still doing more pollination services than managed ones, which mm-hmm. usually means honeybees. Yeah. And this was shown in 40 different crop systems all over the planet. So you can't say that this is like idiosyncratic to blueberries in New Jersey Mm -hmm. or anything like that. This is planet Earth. And one of the people in the audience had this question for me at the end. And there's like 500 people in the audience. And so she stands up and she's got this question. And she goes, I was absolutely amazed by what you said. And I would like to know if these wild pollinators are so valuable, where can I purchase them? (laughs) she was being serious that wasn't a joke like i'm like oh no what do i say here i'm like well that's the interesting thing is that you can't and we we, you know we love to monetize things we love to be able to put something on a truck and and ship it to you and rent it to you and do all these things but you know honestly the biggest thing is creating habitat Mm -hmm. with lots of native plants that's going to attract a diversity of pollinators on the edges of our agricultural fields that's what we're going to have to do more of you know yeah Yeah. and yeah it's not an easy solution but yeah you have to be careful where you get your information from now i i I can't be completely hypocritical by not pointing out that yes we're we work for a nursery that sells native plants you know and it's we if more native plants are are sold yeah we're going to profit from it you know in a way but it's I feel good about what we do because it's not as if we're out marketing. It's it's more restoration efforts. Wherever there's a need, mm-hmm. hopefully those plants can come from us. So mm-hmm. it's you know a lot of ours are are man-made or or natural disasters. If there's a hurricane or if you spill oil, that's where a lot of our plants go. You know, so mm-hmm. it's I I don't want to s- sit here and at least not address that elephant. Oh yeah, in, in the yeah. room by it's, saying, "Oh, it's all a conspiracy." Yeah. Don't don't look over here. <laughs> don't look behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. now, now, Dan, I know a lot of your research, at least it had been in the past, is with um, with a beetle. I don't know a lot about, and that's tiger beetles. Can you tell us a little bit about tiger beetles? And are you still doing research on tiger beetles? Is that that a couple years old? No, no, that is that is my main focus. Uh, my, my big study system is the tiger beetles and honestly it probably will be for the rest of my career i have a lot of stuff going on with them and uh i think it's a great so tiger beetles are about three thousand species worldwide wow. 
We have 20 in New Jersey um, and about 3,000 species worldwide of predaceous beetles that live in open habitats and often early successional habitats because that's where there's open ground, you know? Um, and so they'll be along, you know, patches of, of bare sand in a grassland or in, or in a forested area where there's an opening, um, you know, riverbanks, beaches, um, landfall, you know, rocky outcrops, just open areas. And they're generalist predators. They don't care what they eat. They'll mostly eat ants because that's what's usually around. Um, but what I, why I study them is because they're really, really well known already. Like there are many books written about them and um, they're beautiful and people have looked into their natural history and their distributions. And there's enough good data that I come in and say, are the species really what we think they are? And so I'll use genetic techniques and morphological techniques where we measure structures and do all these things. And sometimes we find that there's actually multiple species within what used to be considered one species. And oh. so my whole point is, what are the units of biodiversity? If we don't even know what the units of biodiversity are, then we can't conserve things. We need to know what's out there first. And so I've discovered a number of new species using genetic techniques. Um, and I found some new tiger beetles just by going to really far away places in hmm. remote areas. and just saying let's i would expect based on geology there to be a species in this mountain range mm -hmm. you know just, we know the history of this mountain range we know how long it's been separated from other areas and i would expect there to be a new species out there and then i went out and found it you know so yeah. it's kind of neat um but yeah so i mean really it's it's coming up biodiversity from the you know what are the units that's that's what i'm interested in doing with tiger beetles so you know so. one one of the things we talked about with sam drogi and i know mm -hmm. we've mentioned this a few times is sometimes you don't know what you've lost because you don't even know what you had there's not enough research out there are you finding it this the the, the same yeah. thing that you're just you're just really starting to scratch the surface about what we don't even know oh yeah absolutely i mean when i when i was a master's student I remember running into somebody who was a PhD student at another institution, and I told him that I was very interested in working on tiger beetles because I just thought they were like the coolest insects. And he said, yeah, you know, maybe what, you know, don't go into taxonomy and systematics because I think that's all been done already. Maybe do something else. And he, he actually told me that all of the species were probably described and that tiger beetles were just like birds, right? Wow. We know what they are. We're not going to find a lot of new species. And I remember being so irritated by this. And, you know, I'm 20, 23 years old or whatever I was. And uh, I thought, I'll bet there are a bunch of new species out there that we don't know about. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not going to give up on this just because some older grad student told me, I ah, don't even bother. It's all been done. <laughs> and uh, it's <laughs> inspired me so much that here we are 20 years later and uh, I'm still talking about it, right? So, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's well, one. if you find a, a new species of tiger, be tiger beetle, Fran's dream is that he has something named after him. <laughs> it originally was a plant, but maybe, maybe it'll be a tiger beetle. <laughs> I'll take anything. At this point, I, I, I'm not going to be – beggars can't be, can't be picky. So yeah. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't see that happening anyway. So, so one of the things we – when we start to wrap up, we always like to ask, and uh, and you kind of just led into this, is how did you find your way into the the – uh, native plant sphere? So, I mean, that's a good question. And I mean, I've just always been interested in nature really broadly. Like, again, my one of my titles is, is naturalist, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I've been more interested in insects than anything else. But if you work on insects, it's impossible not to know about plants. Because yeah. if you, you mm -hmm. want to find insects, 
you got to find the right plant communities to even find them at all. Right. And so yeah. I've always been a wannabe plant person for years. Um, and some of my good friends are actually real plant people. And so I kind of learned from them over the years and I just got involved by being a teaching professor at Drexel for eight years. Uh, I was doing not as much research and a lot more teaching about topics that I thought were important. And I created an entire class called native plants and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And it was really important to me. And actually I was very lucky. I got Doug Tallamy to come in and give uh, a lecture in that class mm-hmm. at one point, which is fantastic. Cause obviously we all know how big of a deal he is. And uh, I loved it. It was my baby. You know, I created this and you know, every now and then people say, Oh, but you're not a plant person. Right. I'm like, I'm kind of a plant person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I, I do, Now I'm doing research on plants. I taught a class on plants. I've taught multiple classes on plants. And so I just kind of found myself um, and it all came from entomology. If you study mm-hmm. insects, you can't avoid plants. You know, yeah. you end up getting involved. Yeah, and and you brought up Dr. Doug Tallamy, but I'll add to that also an entomologist. Not a, a pro- yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people probably confuse it because he's written books that are primarily about plants and using native plants, but he's an entomologist. Yeah, he's studying Absolutely. insects, so it just really highlights how connected uh, everything is, but especially that insect and plant relationship. So yeah. Com- completely, and I, I want to ask a question and and bring this up also we're going to play a message shortly that we got from bill young to promote an event that's coming up next week but it's called the rock star new jersey rock stars yeah, new jersey Rest- rock stars of conservation conservation is there someone that you look up to as as you were starting out that was a big influence for you in the industry that that helped like you you, you talked about that grad student that kind of in with without knowing it he inspired you but is there someone oh, yeah. uh, a big name that that you really look up to or has helped mentor you to 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 be where you're at today so um it's interesting there actually it's it's going to be a non it's going to be an atypical answer here okay perfect um, when i was going into when i was uh, going into sixth grade i think i became a boy scout i just got into boy scouts and i went to a place called camp edge and it was in southwestern New Jersey. It was Alloway. It was Alloway, mm-hmm. right? And um, I remember they had this visiting. I don't even know the details. I don't know if he was a Boy Scout in England, but his name was Paul Derbyshire. And he was um, an incredible bird watcher. And he was, I believe, in his early 20s and already seen like thousands of species of birds. Wow. And he was just fantastic. And he came to this camp and he was teaching us about nature. And I absolutely followed him around. Like I followed him mm-hmm. everywhere we went. And I remember um thinking i saw a black pole warbler but it was just a carolina chickadee right but he could have been like kind of condescending like oh no kid that's just a you know it's just a carolina chickadee but instead he was like let's go out and look for it let's see what it is you know and he knew what Mm -hmm. it was yeah you know but he was super encouraging i have not talked to him in what 30 years now (laughs) so i gotta i gotta look him up i think he's actually um an ecologist over in the uk Mm -hmm. um but yeah he was he was wonderful and he was just he knew so much but he was so accessible and he made you feel like you were a naturalist you know and so i appreciate everything that he did uh because i I really think that was a big part of it It, all these people that inspired me along the way you know i just i distinctly remember being in boy scout camp and learning so much about birds from him and it wasn't insects and it wasn't plants but it didn't matter it was nature you know, mm-hmm. so. we always talk about inclusiveness. Yeah. You know, he included you yeah. in that conversation, yeah. which he, is he didn't tell you you were wrong, which we hear so many times with the native plant people say, oh, you're wrong. You're planning not that. a cultivar. Yeah. You're planning this. You shouldn't be doing that. You need to do this. It's coaching them and, and really encouraging them to find the answer on their own. Yeah. 
instead of uh yeah no that's that's a great story yeah that's so, a wonderful story before we ask our final question yeah. i had a special request for a question just for you um uh, from from our mutual friend rick uh he said that he's still waiting for you to send him your chili recipe <laughs> <laughs> I have been tinkering with this chili recipe for years now. All right. Um, it has 22 different spices in it. Ooh. So um, I, sometimes I have to look at the recipe again to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. So it's <laughs> it's been uh, – my wife tells me I should enter it into a contest, and so maybe this year I will. I don't you, know. You yeah, know what? You I have – maybe we can barter. I have a top-notch <laughs> – buffalo wing sauce <laughs> that has gone through so many changes until i perfected it but i think i finally i haven't changed it now in probably like six or seven years like i think i have it i i'd be willing to trade yeah. i'd be i'd be I, willing I will to share take you up on that offer. okay all right it's kind of like <laughs> a like a honey barbecue garlic hot it good. yeah it's got a little bit of everything it, it's kind of yeah. sweet on the front end and and hot on the back end. <laughs> yeah. well, and for all the listeners, we yeah. mine, what's that? I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say the secret ingredient in mine is uh, well, there's a couple, but one of them is actually spice bush fruits that are ground Ooh. up. Ooh. So it's got a nice sort of sweet but spicy thing that goes well with everything else in the in the recipe. So um, and it's not something that you can go to the store and get. Yeah, I, oh, definitely. Yeah. Like hundreds every year, and. Um, uh, is that one that you guys grow? It's not really a pylons plant, yeah. so I guess mm-hmm. not. No, we do. We do yeah. grow. Oh, yeah, we do great. grow that Fantastic. one. That's perfect. I'll I'll discuss the secret recipe of mine off the air. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to divulge. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I was going to say for all our listeners at home. You didn't think we'd go a whole episode without talking about food it, at all. It, it, it all it's, comes it's, down to food. That happened at some point. It, it, it always so. is about food. All right, so th- we always end with this last question, which seems like a simple question, and it's not. It it, it always tends to be for our guests the hardest question so there is leeway we always ask what your favorite native plant is now we've we're not going to hold it to you where it's your favorite plant forever like that your your answer can change and we've had people that want to do one plant from each category they're like they want to give an herbaceous a tree a shrub so we're gonna or grass we're gonna allow what however you want to answer that we're not going to limit your answer i have an answer all right awesome have to think about it all right. um, it's a milkweed. I love, right. love, 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 love milkweeds, right? Who doesn't? Yeah. But Asclepius variegata, red ring milkweed, super rare in New Jersey now. If mm-hmm. It's even still present. We don't know. I don't think anybody's seen it since like the late 80s. Wow. Um, I've seen it in the southeastern United States, and I've driven hours out of my way on a trip just to find a plant or two. And I've gotten pictures of it, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's got mm. this stunning – it looks like a, a Christmas tree ornament. It's got this stunning really – white beautiful white globes that are the flower heads with little red rings around each part of the of the corona and it's just oh it's really stunning really stunning oh, that sounds stunning. yeah no, yeah, I, I don't know it yeah i'll have to look that yeah. up we'll have to include that so this is where we we kind of end with a final thought and and this is all three of us get the chance to kind of the, the space is yours to, to use it however you want. You can wrap it up. You can summarize. You can promote something. You can discuss something that maybe we didn't discuss or bring up. But we kind of give you the floor uh, and, and, and let you use it however you want. So it's all yours. Well, I guess uh, the most important message that I can think of, and now we're going to insects here because, again, I am an entomologist, <laughs> yes. right? Uh, this relates to all of nature but especially insects is – 
when I have when I teach my bug camp, which is something I do for kids um, in Gloucester County, mm-hmm. it's it's run by the um, Rowan University. It's run by them, and you know, a lot of times people come and they expect to talk about pests. They expect to talk about, oh, here's how we get rid of this thing, and here's how you know we're going to show kids, you know, what kinds of bugs to watch out for. And I don't do that. I actually talk about all the beneficial insects out there. And really, when you come right down to it, the vast majority of insects and the vast majority of, of plants are beneficial. Hmm. You know, we're really so focused on spotted lanternfly or garlic mustard or whatever it is that we forget that they're the exceptions. They're the really, really, really bad exceptions that are the le- way less than 1%, right? Yeah. And so let's focus on the good. Let's focus on all the great beetles and flies and you know bumblebees and all these things that are doing so much for us and we could not live without literally could not live without right yeah. so i think that this is the, the most important message is hopefully some positivity it's just so easy for us to get hung up in negative right and most of the time when you talk about conservation the news isn't great it's not usually like oh we just suddenly saved a species it's usually mm-hmm. like oh god we got a new disease that just moved into mm-hmm. beech trees or whatever and uh so i just want to say I, I think that if we if we work really hard, you know, this generation coming up, they will be able to solve some of these problems that we have. And I, I think we should be positive. We should really try because awesome. we have to try. If we yeah. don't try, there's no point, right? I think that's a great message. I think that's a great message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tom, would, would you like to Mine is kind of what we, we hit on a little bit earlier was just you have to do something. You can't just sit back and, and be, dance it, be a historian. Take an active role, use the information you have in front of you, do a little bit more research, and then act quickly. There's a, a I can't remember who said the quote, but it was, um, I'd rather do the wrong thing on time than the right thing too late. And that might be what we need to do now. So, nice. Very yeah. nice. So I'm going to go, for mine, I'm going to go on a limb and say this is probably my favorite episode that we've done. Mm-hmm. And part of it was... We didn't necessarily all agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that. But the important thing was even though we didn't agree, there was a mutual respect with how we presented and listened to everyone's side of the story. And I think we need to do more of that in general. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of collective knowledge on this podcast right now. Most of it coming from Dan. From Dan. But. Yeah, Dan's, <laughs> Dan's taking the line share Probably like at least 75% <laughs> yeah. is on that end. But, but there was also a large amount of humbleness with mm-hmm. what we – what we don't know and yeah. and acknowledge hey yeah we 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 know a lot of things and there's a lot of things we don't know and there's a lot i probably forget more than i remember um so you know when we talk about inclusiveness and and making that circle circle bigger have respect present and listen listening mm-hmm. is is just a big apart and and you never know what you're going to learn you're not a you're not just trying to teach you're trying to learn as well so it's it's important to keep doing both of those things and that's that's my final thought there i got deep for you again it's been a while yeah oh yeah it has been a while friend. <laughs> you usually don't get that deep no, no. But, but that wraps it up like Wait. Oh. thank you thank <laughs> yeah, you before yeah. before we wrap it up should we play oh the, yeah play the message play now, the message now this is from Please. bill young he called into our question and comment line i have not listened to this message so i oh, don't gosh. know i don't know what we're about <laughs> to hear and I'm, I'm hoping i'm selecting the right one but here we go 
Hey guys, it's Bill Young. I'm in. I'm on Horseshoe Road in Sayreville, New Jersey. We're doing this whole uh, restoration of a marsh and uh, and young forest. I'm calling to uh, announce that there is a webinar that your listeners might be interested in. It's hosted by Duke Farms. It is called Webinar NJ Environmental Rock Stars: A Reflection by my friend and colleague, uh, Blaine Rothhauser, who, just for his photographs and some of his wisdom, it would, it would be great. I'm really not sure what to expect, but I do know that uh, Don Knezic is one of the ten rock stars. Blaine has scoured the state for people that are doing, you know, important and critical work in NJ conservation, and uh, so I hope you enjoy it. It's free. It's a webinar that you, if you go on Eventbrite at Duke Farms, you do have to sign up, and it's 7:30 to 8. Uh, I'm sorry, 7 p.m. to 8:30 on Tuesday, April 13th. Hope to see you there, and uh, love the podcast, guys. Keep them coming; it, they just get better every week. I don't know how you come up with this material, but it's very enjoyable, and um, I, I don't go anywhere without it. All right, be well, my friends. Bye. All right, that, that was a great. Yeah, that was and a we'll great share the link to that uh, that event both in yeah. our Facebook group and on our website as well. I believe be, besides Don Knezic, who is a former mm-hmm. former guest, Emil Devito, I believe uh, is. I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't on there. Is, so. And Bill Young yeah. is one of the Bill ten. Bill is t- as well as yeah. Oh, you're oh, one yeah. also. So wow. We're... There's your sneak preview. We know four. <laughs> we know four of the ten. Well, I'm glad we played. I didn't realize that you yeah, were one of the yeah. ten, so that was perfect timing that we played that. All right. So, well, that wraps it up. Yes. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Dan Duran from Rowan University. Uh, and, Dan, we don't have the links for where people can find more of your stuff. So where, if people wanted to find more of your uh, information about yourself, about your research, where would they go? So uh, Rowan University has a Department of Environmental Science, and if you go to Rowan's, uh, actually, if you just put in Department of Environmental Science Rowan University uh, into Google, you'll you'll come up with the main page, and there's a link to um, all of the different professors there, and I am one of them. You'll see a picture of me with a giant snake around my neck, uh, and it has my email address, and you can always email me there. Um, that's what I've got right now for I'm, I need a little bit more web presence. I do have a Twitter page which is Dan Duran Bugman. So it's at there we go. That's D-A-N-D-U-R-A-N Bugman. Um, and I post pictures of new species descriptions. I've now described 10 new species to science uh, and a new genus, and there's pictures of all them on there. Uh, recent publications, other things I found to be interesting or fun. And, um, you know, feel free to go on there and check that out too. Awesome. Perfect. So, and we're going to put those links on... Um on our website as well. So with that, thank you everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, as always, we have to give a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing their theme music to the Meet Our Guest episodes. You can follow uh, them or you can get their music anywhere you consume um, your music, uh, iTunes, Spotify. I believe that the name of the song that we use for our theme music is called Can't, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. by them. So make sure you check it out. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line that Bill just called us on. You can call us directly at 215 346 6189. I will repeat that 215 346 6189. 
You can ask a question or leave a comment. If we pick your question or comment, we will play it and answer it on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, let's keep growing that Native Plant Healthy Planet Facebook group. Keeps getting uh, bigger by the day, and the conversations have been great. A lot of new, a lot of new faces with a lot of great questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, make sure you probably are going to listen at Apple Podcast, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really wherever you consume your podcast, you're going to find us there. Even on Alexa, you can ask her to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, just like I do when I'm washing the dishes. Uh, it gives us one more download when I do that. Um, when you're doing that, uh, do us a favor, uh, leave us a five star review. Those are so appreciated uh and they really do help us a lot when uh when it comes to other people finding our podcast they do i believe the last one was was from deer bum which Uh, i haven't read that one yeah which was a very nice review uh five-star review just saying that uh the amount of good information they get from our podcast um and then if you really want to help spread this message take your favorite episode of ours and share it with a friend that'll help this uh, this native plant mission just go so much further if we can get more people to listen and, and listen really to our guests. It's not to listen to us. It's to listen to our guests because they're giving out the really great information. Be a missionary and spread the message. Yeah. With that, I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, coming up next, we have another Buzz episode where we, we already finished our – I don't know. It's not a trilogy. What do you call – Something that's four. <laughs> a quad quadruplet? <laughs> I don't know either. Well, we a, finished it. It so, was a four-part <laughs> series. <laughs> so we're on to, to, to something new for the next one. Yeah. So uh, we have that coming up next week. Which, and, yeah, probably yeah. going to be another controversial topic in yeah. um, potentially – uh, this is the season for the the my least favorite internet meme where they it's not even a meme it's just a picture of a, a plant tag from Home Depot talk and it goes on the whole post is about Munich it's like six years old and it still goes viral and even though most of the information in there has been um, I don't want to say debunked but disputed over uh, over years but it's shared constantly and it's perpetuating some misinformation in my mind so we thought we might talk about. Uh, chemical practices and some of the misinformation out there because and from both sides not just we're gonna have a healthy conversation yeah, about it it's so uh if it doesn't happen next week it'll happen at some point always happening next i week. think it's next week <laughs> <laughs> so. so thanks again everyone uh until then keep it native Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.